What we'll realize as we read this psalm is that there is something that's quite familiar in this theme. What we'll realize is that even though we feel like we've evolved past the times of the kings, the times of monarchies, the times of bloodlines, what, what, we, what we realize, if we're really, really honest, is that we aren't these super enlightened democratic people. That, that in a real sense, we completely understand this idea of kings and thrones and monarchies. And, you know, you don't have to look far to realize that kings and thrones and monarchies and bloodlines still capture our attention, right? I mean, everybody knows what I'm talking about. There's this really popular show on TV. You have to pay a little bit extra to get it, but plenty of people are willing to do that. It's called The Game of Thrones. And let me just be clear, I don't endorse everything about this show. I don't consider it to be uh, family television, okay? But it's clear that it's enchanting the people of the world. Not just the people of this country, but all over the world, people talk about, make reference to this Game of Thrones. Well, why is that? Well, it's because even though we, many of us around the world, live in democracies now, we understand that deep down in our hearts there is this longing for the world of kings, the world of thrones. So I don't think we've actually moved that far past the things we'll read about today in this kingly psalm. Psalm 2 stands the test of time. We'll see that. And what I'll hopefully show us today is that there, there are five stages throughout the history of mankind. And in each stage, there is this problem and this solution that are highlighted right here in Psalm 2. Problem and solution. And you could state them together like this. We rage against the rightful kings offered to us by God for our good. And if we just accepted their reign in our lives, we'd be the happiest we could possibly be. There's the problem and the solution that's offered to us right here in Psalm 2. And so these five stages that this problem and solution fit into, and we'll walk through them, look like this. The first days of humanity. The king's days of the Psalms in the Old Testament. Jesus' days. Our days. And a future day. So that's what we're going to do. That's sort of our grand scale for our time together. We're going to look through, just, you know, I'm just going to teach you everything about human history. It'll go real quick. Don't worry. Okay. So let's read Psalm 2. We're just going to read verses 1 to 3, okay? Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. They say this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord? and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're plotting together. You see, see what's happening here? There's three groups mentioned here. There's the nations, which are full of peoples, which are led by kings. So it's not just a problem of the kings gathering together to overthrow the Lord. And the Lord here is Yahweh, the, king, uh, the God of Israel and the anointed who is the king of Israel. 
These kings represent the peoples who are part of these nations that surround the nation of Israel. That's the historical context from which the psalm is written. So these kings at the impetus of the people, they actually come together and sit around a table together. They're plotting together. Now here's what's so incredible about this. You can't miss this or else uh, you'll miss some of the power behind this. Do you think it's normal for nations and kings of nations to come together and sit around a table and plot against one specific king? This is extremely rare. Because they're plotting together not for the benefit of just their own nation, but just for the benefit of the world as a whole. That's very rare for people to do this. Particularly in these days, which lacked the kinds of communication systems and transportation options, okay? To come together, to sit at a table, to plot against one particular king of actually this quite small nation in, in, in the middle of the Middle East against the Lord and His anointed. Here's what they're trying to do. To remove God and His anointed king, and by removing the king, by proxy, His people and His nation. They want to wipe them out. What do they want to do? They want to cut the cords from them. They want to break the bonds that they have with the nation of Israel, with the God of Israel, Yahweh, with their king. They want to get rid of them, wipe them out. They'd go so far to do this as they would plot together, they'd get around a table together. That's how badly they want to get rid of God and get rid of his people, get rid of his king. They want a world without God, Yahweh, without God's people, without God's rules, without God's religion. That, in their minds, would be a way better world. You see this? This is the oldest of ideas. This is the first truly unique idea that human beings had. It's as old as humanity itself. So let me walk us all the way back to those first days in which we were saying the very same thing. Today, people are espousing this idea. Right? We hear this. If we could just get rid of God, if we could just get rid of religion, if we could just throw them off, break the bonds that they have to our society, then we'd finally be free. We'd finally be happy. Got to get rid of God. Got to get rid of religion. There's a group of popular authors called the New Atheists that, that have written very popular books in the last 20 years basically saying this. God and religion and God's people, they're the main problem in the world if we just could get rid of them. Everything would be good. Uh, secularism is a form of this. Secularism isn't in itself terrible, but it has many forms, and it's basically to remove religion and God from public life. You see secularism being espoused in media, through politics, in the academy. Very popular ideas. Maybe you're even sitting in the room right now, and, and you hear this idea, and it's compelling to you. That maybe, maybe it is God and his people and, and religion that are the cause, and if we could just break our bonds from it, then we'd have the best possible world. 
I just, I just want to say, if that's you in the room, that we are so glad that you're here. You, you, you found your way into a place in which it'll be clear we don't necessarily agree with that way of thinking, but we're glad that you're here considering whether or not that compelling idea is true or not. So we're really, that's one of the reasons we exist as a community, to help people come and consider whether or not the things that the world is saying are true or the things that God's Word is saying are true. We're so glad that you, I hope, I hope you truly feel that. There's no timeline for, for which you have to change your opinion on that. To stay, you could stay in this community for as long as you want, believing if we could just break the bonds from God and religion and God's people, the world would be better. We, we're glad that you're here. But I do hope that at least there's one thing tonight that, that we all can agree upon. That, that probably most of us walked into this room not even really thinking about. And that is this, that this thesis that we hear all the time in our world is, is as old as the hills themselves. That it's not a product of globalization, it's not a product of technological advancement, it's not a product of evolutionary enlightenment, it's not a product of trial and error. It's not a product of humility and openness. This idea that if we could just break the bonds from religion and God, that the world would be better. That's, that's just not a new idea. I hope, if nothing else you get, that you just realize this is not a new idea. So let me keep walking us back. So that's us today. Believe it or not, we're in the 21st century. In, are we in the 20? Yeah, this is the 21st century. <laughs> so hard to know when you're always thinking about the future. Okay, so uh, in the 20th century, there, there was this same belief. In fact, uh, there was this group of people called the Nazis who believed the same thing. And there was also a group of people, really it started in the 19th century, the Marxists, who believed in the same idea. Of course, Marxism led to the communist movement. This idea that if we could just create a society free from the bonds of God and religion, that society would function properly. Now, now I'm gonna, we're going to turn the wheels of time further back, and we're going to go way back, even before Christianity. And we're going to go to the time of the ancient Greeks. Most people think these were pretty smart people. And what's interesting is there were Greeks who had definitely an idea of gods and, and the divine. Uh, but there was a group, a very popular group within them, uh, known as the Epicureans, founded by a guy named Epicurus. And it was a philosophical movement in ancient Greece and uh, founded in 307 B.C. Okay? 300 years before the time of the New Testament and the beginning of the Jesus movement. And there was a group of people who had lots of followers called the Epicureans, and this is what they believed. They believed in atomic materialism, meaning that the material world is all that there is, that we need to remove our superstition in the divine, our superstition in the gods, 
our superstition in the belief of divine intervention, and if we just could break those bonds, then we could live the life we were meant to leave, live. And these Epicureans were known as uh, pleasure seekers. But what's interesting is they, they weren't the group that was known for lavish pleasure-seeking. Pleasure they were known for living a simple yet pleasurable life. So the school they founded was actually called the Garden. Friendship was emphasized. Many in this community were vegetarians. They disliked politics for the most part. They were godless. They were simple. They were hedonists. Sound familiar at all? This is describing Seattle. Simple, back to the earth. Life is about enjoying, having pleasure, but not going off the rails. If we could just break the bonds of, of superstition, the belief in divine intervention, then we could finally get to the perfect society. 300 B.C. This is not a new idea. We didn't come up with it. This psalm was written in one, uh, somewhere between 1,000 and 700 B.C. That's when the psalms were written. And right here, clearly, we have the same philosophical, theological ideas presenting themselves. If we could just break the bonds with God and religion to not be responsible to the higher power, then we could finally live as we want to live. Now let's keep turning back the wheel of time. And if you believe that the Bible is at all true, that it represents true historical reality, and you, be, and you turn to the very beginning of this book, to the book of Genesis, in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, you see this exact same idea proposed. In the original garden, you see this idea presented, and it's actually presented by another being. Represented in the story by a snake. And this is what the, how the idea goes. Do you really need this God? And His rules, His restrictions, His do you really need Him? Wouldn't you be happier if you just decided for yourself what was best? You don't need God. You don't need His anointed. In fact, it's just making it worse. Break those bonds. Cast away those cords. He's trying to keep something from you that's good. Right at the beginning. This is not a new idea. This idea is as old as humanity itself. So from the first days, we've been saying this, raging against God, plotting in vain, trying to overthrow the Lord and His anointed, trying to burst our bonds from Him to cast away the cords. Look at verse 4 to 6 now. If you've got your Bible, read with me. Verse 4 to 6 says, When this happens, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. 
As for me, says the Lord, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, it's important to remember this is God's response to our raging against him. This is his response to us. He laughs. And derision is just another way to say the Lord laughs. Now, here's what's important. This is not some Mr. Burns sinister laugh, okay? Some of us might be, when we read this, might be thinking of some old man chuckling in the sky, I'll get you, (laughs) okay? That's not what's happening here. Now, he is laughing because it is, it's funny. In in a sense, it's, it's sort of a laugh, a mocking laugh because it's just so preposterous that even if you get all the kings of the world together that they might overtake the power of Yahweh. But, but it's not really sinister. It's more like a dad laughing at a stubborn son. And I had this experience this week. For those of you who don't, I got a two-year-old son named Grayson. He's been blessed by red hair and the personality to go along with it. And he, and he thinks he's pretty smart, thinks he's pretty powerful, and so he's in this new phase where he, he's pretty sure he can outlast us and not sleep at night. So like the last three nights, he hasn't gone to bed till midnight. It's brutal, okay? And a couple nights ago, it got to the point where, I mean, he just stands in his crib and he just hollers, he usually hollers for mom, because know, he knows she'll break. But I am the Lord's anointed in his life, okay? So I took him in the car, I strap him in real tight, and we drive around. And for 45 minutes, we're driving around the streets of Seattle. And every time I look back at this kid, I look over my shoulder, he's, sit, he's sitting in, the, in, in his seat just going. <laughs> just his, it's almost like he's willing his eyes to be as wide as possible so that I know he's not going to sleep. It's unreal. And, and I'm like, he's, why do you rage against the Lord and his anointed, okay? I am the king of this house. What are you, what are you doing? And, and I'm laughing at him, and it's, and it's kind of humorous. I mean, it, it's very, very humorous. You all laughed. And I was, I'd have to turn so he couldn't see me, and I'd just laugh. And then I'd look back and be like, sleep right now. <laughs> you know? And uh, finally he fell asleep, you know? And he sleeps in until like 9 o'clock, and it's just like crazy. But it's like, this is what it's like. For, it's like, he actually believes he might win. I know he's not going to win. There's no way. But he is so stubborn that it makes me laugh. And you know, that laughing has, has a, it's a little bit of humor. You know, it's, it's pretty funny. Like, you're not going to win. And it's a little bit of frustration, like, why are you warring against me? I, I want what's best for you. I love you. Just listen to me. Stop trying to overthrow me. So I'm frustrated. And, and then there's a little bit of crying. I mean, deep, deep down, I'm hurt. And it's like, you know, I'm worried for you. If you don't change your sleep habits, this is going to have an effect on you. This will hurt you. And so there's all of those mixed up in this laughing. That's the reality that's going on here. 
Why? Why do they rage? Why are they plotting in vain? Why, why do they meet together to come against me? It's funny. It's frustrating. And I'm worried about them. So verse 6 says, As for me, I, and, and really it's just the same word twice. He, he says, I, I set my king on Zion, Jerusalem. In the history of the world, in the history of Israel, in which this psalm is originally written, he is speaking about an actual physical king that is sitting on a real throne on Zion, which is another uh, term referring to Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation of Israel. And the way God's always worked through history, through these stages, is there were prophets, and then there were judges that ruled, and then, and then God gave the people what they wanted, which was a king. That started around 1,000 B.C. and lasted for about 400 years. And so these are the days of the king. And you see it happening. People warring against God and against his people. So I just want to explain a little bit because it's important to understand how a king became a king. And when a king became a king, he would always be anointed. So the very first king that was ever anointed to become king of Israel is a guy named Saul. And, and the, there are four things that happened when Saul was anointed, okay? So if you go back to the book of 1 Samuel, you can read about this history. And the four things that happened were this. The very first thing that happened, there was a prophet named Samuel, a prophet who himself had been called by God. Samuel the prophet came and he brought good news to Saul that God desired to make him king. Okay? So a prophet comes to bring news of God's desire. The second thing that happens is Samuel took oil and pours it over and covers Saul. This is a physical representation of the third element, which is that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. It says that the Spirit of God came down and rushed upon Saul. And then the fourth, fourth thing that we see happen is that Saul actually begins himself to prophesy. He runs into a group of prophets and himself begins to prophesy, showing that he's filled with the Spirit of God. Now, if you read about the history of Saul, he was not a great king. He did some good things. He did a lot of not-so-good things. And eventually what happens is that God removes his blessing from King Saul and removes the spirit that he gave to Saul, and he anoints another king. And that's a king that many of us have probably heard about, King David, the most famous king in all of Israel. This was the king in which God says, this is a man after my own heart, meaning that David was a very good king. He came very, very close to what it should look like to be God's anointed. And, and here's what you find when you see the story of David's anointing, David becoming king. You see all four of these elements. A prophet brings news, pours oil over David, the Spirit of God comes upon David, and David goes and begins to prophesy. Same four elements. So, the same things happen in the time of every king. The nations rage against God's anointed but another thing always happens, these kings always show themselves to be inadequate as the anointed one of Israel. 
because this psalm not only says something true about all peoples from the first days to the king's days, but it also looks forward to a better, truer, perfect king. Okay? Because the people always rage, but you see every king that comes along falls short of the expectations of the king. So there's these promises in this psalm that are never fulfilled by any human king during the days of the kings. And if you read through the Old Testament, what this should leave you feeling, what this should stir up in you, is this angst. Well, who could, who could actually do it? If King David can't do it, who could do it? Who could be this king? Who could actually live up to the anointing? Who could be this Messiah? I'm really excited because starting next week, we're starting a new teaching series in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospels are four stories about this person named Jesus. This person that lived in human history, who lived in a town of Nazareth, right outside the Sea of Galilee. He had these four stories called the Gospels written about him. And the author of these stories, including Mark, believed who could be that king, who could live up to the anointing, who could be the Messiah. They believed that it was this carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus. And you know what? So we get to spend the next six months asking that question ourselves. Is it true what these gospel writers believed? That the anointed spoken of in Psalm 2 The king that fulfills all that God wanted from his king is actually this Jesus. So I'm so excited about that series. If you have friends that are considering this Jesus, this will be a great series to bring them to. We'll walk through his life. Many people think they know about Jesus. The reality is many of us don't. So we go to the Gospels and we study them and we learn. So why did they believe it? Why did these gospel writers believe this about Jesus? Well, what we'll see in the very beginning of Mark is this. This Jesus comes onto the scene, and the first character in his story is a man called John the Baptist, who was known amongst the people as, guess what, a prophet. And he was prophesying about a coming one that was greater than him. And then Jesus comes in to the story. And guess what happens? This prophet, who was bringing good news that the kingdom of God was coming in the form of the Messiah, and then he points at Jesus, then that John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River, covers him, the physical sign of what was about to happen when it says he came up out of the water, and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And guess what else happens? A voice from heaven quotes Psalm 2 and says this, this is my beloved son. You can see how they are starting to wonder, is this the anointed? Is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? A prophet comes, he's covered with the water, the Spirit of God rushes upon him. Guess what Jesus does right after that? And he never did it before that. He starts his public ministry his prophetic ministry, and he goes through all the land of Israel 
proclaiming the good news himself, prophesying about the coming of the kingdom of God, healing, teaching, proclaiming the good news. Sounds familiar. So if that's true, if these things happened, you could understand why they began to see him as the king promised in Psalm 2. But it's not only the beginning of his ministry, the beginning of Mark, that makes them wonder if this is the king. It's also the end of his ministry. Because if you know the story, what you'll understand is that, guess what happens to this potential anointed? Guess who gathers against him? The kings of the land. The rulers, the leaders. And interestingly, the Jews who hate the Romans conspire together, sit at a table, and plot against this Jesus. This man who had no money, had no military, had no real name to speak of. And they sit in a room and they plot against him to break his bonds, throw off any chains that he's trying to put on them. Sounds a lot like the pattern that we've seen since the garden. And guess what? They rage, they plot, and they do break the bonds. They cut him off from the land of the living by hanging him on a cross. And he's dead. Problem solved. Jesus is gone. Isn't that fascinating? And what they're doing, and they don't even realize it, that's, what, that's, that's why God laughs. They're actually fulfilling the prophecy, not just killing Jesus. They're fulfilling the prophecy that whoever God anoints as his king will be raged against, will be plotted against, and will die. That's why Jesus stands on the cross and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't even know that they're a part of your plan. That they're fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 2. And Jesus dies, and God is frustrated, and, and he weeps as a father does, and he laughs, knowing that those who think that they're sovereign are actually fulfilling the plan of the true sovereign. And three days later, God proclaims most emphatically, I am in control, I am the kingmaker, Jesus is my son, Jesus is the true king, and he raises him from the dead. And sin is conquered, death is conquered, decay is conquered, and the king of the north, south, east, west, stands alive and begins to rule over all peoples in every age, on heaven and on earth. He is alive. Promised in Psalm 2. Proven by the resurrection. That was in 30 AD. Now you, you ask this question. Well, then why didn't he take his throne in Jerusalem on Zion? Because of verses 8 and 9. Let's read them. 8-9 says this. We'll read 7-2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Lord also said to this son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And because of the promises of verses 8 and 9, Jesus waits. He waits to ask for it all. And as the story goes, Jesus, instead of taking his throne, takes his disciples and one other, makes them apostles, 
And you know what he does? As a prophet, he anoints them. He ascends spiritually and physically to heaven, and then he sends down to them the Spirit of God from heaven to empower them. And if you read Acts chapter 2, this is exactly what happens. Jesus, the prophet, tells them this is what he's going to do. Then he sends the Spirit to them. And then Acts chapter 2 says, then they were baptized, and then they went out and began to prophesy. All four of the same signs of anointing that God has always talked about. And guess what those disciples did? Whom the prophet, King Jesus, handpicked and directed. You know what they did? They went into all the land and prophesied and told people about the kingdom of God, about the good news of Jesus. And then they said, receive, repent, and you will be given to the Spirit of God. And that's what they did. And when people received and they believed, they too received the Spirit of God. And then they were baptized. And then guess what they did? They went out and prophesied. That is the story for the last 2,000 years. And that's the fourth stage of this great plan. These are our days. These are the days of the church. That for 2,000 years, this cycle continues. That prophets go out, they preach the good news, people receive the good news and they believe, they receive the Holy Spirit, they're baptized, anointed, a physical representation of the spiritual change, and then they too go out, prophesy, proclaim the good news. And so in a very real sense, we, the church, become the hands and feet of King Jesus who reigns from heaven. This is the plan of God. And it happens again and again and again. And if you watch the Game of Thrones, there's this person called the Hand of the King. And they wear a little emblem. This is a real thing that happened in the days of old. And the Hand of the King would go and he'd do the work of the king. And guess what you should expect if you're the hand of the king, even though King Jesus is reigning? You should expect Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3 to happen to you because you are the physical representation of King Jesus reigning from heaven. You should expect the nations to rage against you. You should expect the peoples to plot in vain against you. You should expect that people would sit and counsel together. How can we overthrow God and his anointed, the church? It's happened for the last 2,000 years. We should expect it because we are the anointed of God. It's interesting stuff, isn't it? So true. It makes sense of, of everything that at least I've experienced in how people act towards God's anointed. We should expect this. And every time it happens, we should do two things. We should weep and lament We should be frustrated and cry, but we should also, in a sense, laugh because the peoples are fulfilling Psalm chapter 2. They're telling us, they're confirming to us our anointing. Oh my gosh, why do people hate the people of God so much, particularly the people of Israel, the people of Yahweh, the people of the New Testament, the people of Jesus? It makes sense of it when you understand that, that God said this is what happens. It's been happening since the first days, and it'll happen till the final days. The culture will try to throw off God. They'll try to throw off the church. They'll try to throw off religion. Your friends, your bosses, your coworkers, 
when they find out that you're one of God's, it could get dicey for you. And when that happens, the Apostle Paul tells us that we should celebrate because we are finally suffering just like King Jesus. We're never more like him than when that happens to us because that's what happens to God's anointed. It's amazing. And in a sense, in a sense, the very way that God does this, the very way that he takes the poor and the powerless, the not so great, the not so wonderful, the not so powerful, he who has no name, he who has no money, he who has no power, and he takes them and through them he reigns and rules the world. That in itself is a manifestation of God's subversive laughter. He's saying, you think you know how this works. Watch. I'm going to take all these fishermen and I'm going to start the greatest movement the world has ever seen. That's God laughing. Subversive rule. Started by King Jesus, the one that nobody expected could be the Messiah, and he continues it through you and through me. And so you might not think you're much, but you are a king or a queen of God. You see how amazing this is? The poor and the powerless become the kings and the queens in God's kingdom. I love it. The people of Yahweh. Oh, wow. (laughs) And if you just read the stories of ancient Rome and these emperors who thought, in my rule, I will get rid of Christianity. And they make inscriptions that we found through archaeology. And you know what? Guess who's still standing? Not the Roman Empire. The people of God. Again and again and again. The people who say, if we could just throw off God, the Nazis, the Marxists, then the world will be, guess who's still there? The people of God. Because God sits and he laughs. What are you doing? Stop. I want what's best for you. These are my people. Join them. Join them. Now there is coming a day These are the final days, this fifth stage. When Jesus, though he's waiting now, he's waiting, like I said, to enact and to ask God for his kingdom in full. He's waiting because he loves and he wants as many as possible to choose to join in his kingdom. This final stage is coming. Let me just finish reading the psalm for you. It says, ask, God says to the Son, ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them like a rod, with a rod of iron and dash them like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you perish in your way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. For some of you this may sound harsh, why does it have to be this way? And if it sounds harsh to you, if it so- it's probably because you're on the top. It's probably because you've never been a victim. It's probably because you've never experienced systematic injustice against you or against your peoples. But I'll tell you, for the majority of people in the history of the world, even in the history of right now, 
They hear this final vindication and they hear it as sweetness. Because they say, will it ever be made right? Is my legacy to just live an uncomfortable, victimized life? Is there ever coming a time of true justice? This is God's promise. Yes, it won't always be this way. At some point, my son will say, okay, it's time to take inheritance of all the nations. It's time to force out any king, any nation, any people that is against my rule. And it's coming. And to many, to most, it's the sweetest of news. Because it won't always be like this. It's the last promise. And then I'll say this. Jesus doesn't take his throne through entitlement. He, he's not one of these kings who paid nothing to get his throne. When you know the story of Jesus, what you realize is that this throne was bought with the greatest price. That King Jesus paid it all for his throne. And he is now being unfathomably patient to take full hold of it. Look at verse 11-12 real quick. Serve the Lord and fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the king. Kiss, kiss the king. The picture here is getting on your knees and the king holding out his hand and you're kissing his hand. And for so many, this is so hard to do. Maybe this is hard for you to do. But this is a different kind of king. This is a different kind of king. This is King Jesus who said when he looked over Jerusalem, oh, how often I've longed to gather my children your children, Father, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you, O Israel, were not willing. This is what Jesus is saying. I've mentioned this before. There's this picture. There's these wildfires in that part of the world that will sweep across like a fire, like a wrath quickly kindled. And what a hen would do, and the people would know this because they'd walk in after a wildfire and they'd see these bumps, in, in the dirt and the ash. They'd be, what is that? And then they'd scrape it away. And what they'd see is a mother hen who had taken her wings and put them over her chicks. And the fire came through and burned her. But her chicks remained alive. That's what Jesus is crying out. Oh, that I long to gather you under my wings. So that when the wrath of God is kindled and comes quickly like a wildfire through the plains that you might be protected as I take upon death myself. It's exactly what he did. This is a different kind of king. He paid it all that his children, his brothers and sisters, would have life. He took upon on himself on Calvary's cross. He spread out his arms as wide as godly possible and took upon the wrath for our sin. That's why the very end of the psalm says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who come voluntarily underneath his rule, who bow their knee before the cross and kiss the hand of their king, Jesus.
Maybe you've never done that because it just seems too much. Why does he need that from me? The final thing I'll say is this, that as he stretches out his hand, I just, I just want you to know what this looks like. When he stretches it out, and you're bowing down and you look up at his hand, what you realize as you kiss his hand is that there's a giant scar right in the middle where the nail was driven through. God and religion and God's rule and reign might feel restrictive. It's not. It's not. It's true freedom. Otherwise, why would the Messiah let his hand be pierced? He wants what's best for you. You can believe that. You can trust that. He doesn't want to take away. He wants to give. But this is how it works. You taking refuge under his rule and reign and kingship. Would you pray with me? God, uh, as I pray, I'm going to pray as, as, as Ryan did last week, and we're just going to pray this psalm. And I'm going to pray it. Father God, we're gonna, I'm going to pray it to you. I pray that, that my friends here would pray along with me. We're going to pray this psalm in the first person because we too are like these kings, like these nations, like these people who rage against you. Why does this nation rage and its peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of culture set themselves against you, God? Why do they take counsel against you, Lord? Why do I take counsel against you, God, and against your anointed, saying, let me burst your bonds apart and cast your cords from me? You sit in the heavens, God, and you laugh. You, Lord, hold us in derision. Then you speak to us in your wrath and Terrify us in your fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You told us of this decree. You said, you, Lord, said to Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give it the nations to you as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with an iron rod and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You've told us that we as kings should be wise and be warned that the peoples of this city and this world should serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You've told us to kiss your son Jesus, lest he be angry and we perish, for his wrath burns quickly when it comes. God, may we be counted among the blessed who find refuge in King Jesus. Amen.